0: Welcome to the PeaceWorks Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moles. I'm a pastor and biblical counselor who helps churches and families confront the evil of domestic violence and promote healthy, God-honoring relationships. Welcome back to the PeaceWorks Podcast, everyone. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the foundational elements of biblical counseling and domestic abuse, but before we jump into that hot topic, let's talk a little bit about PeaceWorks University. Every week on the podcast, I know you're you're probably tired of hearing about it, but I just need to remind you, and it's my pleasure to remind you that PeaceWorks University is our online membership site designed specifically for people helpers who want to deliver gospel-centered responses to domestic abuse. If you have benefited from the PeaceWorks podcast, then PeaceWorks University is your next best step. Uh, This is the area where you'll find just a past library of my teaching, video-based teaching, written material, uh, bonus material, master classes with experts in the field of abuse, and all of that is packaged and prepared for you no more searching around no more looking Uh, it's all there prepared for you in one location that's peaceworks peaceworks university so please consider uh, that being your next step if you have benefited from the peaceworks podcast i assure you you're going to love peaceworks university you can find out more about uh, peaceworks U over at chrismoles.org so today on the podcast want to talk a little bit about biblical counseling boy that is a hot topic in some uh, corners of my work in domestic abuse it's no secret at least i have tried to to be very open and transparent that i am a certified biblical counselor with two of the larger uh, biblical counseling organizations acbc and iabc i have relationships with every acronym in the biblical counseling world. Uh, if you're not familiar with biblical counseling, we love our letters. So I am a, you know associated loosely and familiar with all of the alphabet soup of biblical counseling from the BCC to CCEF to ABC to IBCD. They all uh, are valuable uh, partners and friends in many ways. And I'm thrilled and happy to be part of the movement. However, I do know that in my work in domestic abuse and confronting perpetrators and trying to serve victims, I run into the occasional speed bump, the occasional roadblock from folks who've not been counseled well or cared for well by folks within the alphabet soup of biblical counseling. Now, I can't speak for every certifying organization, every training organization, uh, organization. They are quite diverse and quite different and I wouldn't attempt uh, to speak for them, although I'm often happy to speak with them when I have a voice. The other thing that comes up quite a bit is the assumption that um, my voice carries a lot of weight in that world. I consider myself just one of the band of many that try to take the sufficient Word of God and apply it to people and situations in a healing uh, or confrontational manner when necessary. But as I've thought about all of the questions surrounding biblical counseling and my involvement in the biblical counseling movement and domestic abuse, I was reminded of some of the basic elements, those key elements that all of us in biblical counseling are taught perhaps in our very first training. If you're unfamiliar with, uh, the movement and the work of biblical counseling most counselors in particular lay counselors are exposed to biblical counseling through what's often called you know a foundational course or track one or however it's worded and it is usually uh, a 30-hour training course that's usually your first introduction in most uh, agencies not all in, in many agencies Uh, That is your initial introduction to biblical counseling followed uh, by, you know, more study, uh, reading, exams, supervision before uh, you receive certification. And the agencies and certifying organizations are all slightly different in the time, the length, the level of education, uh, and supervision hours. But that's kind of the basic path and that first step, those very first classes often contain something that many will call the key elements or the foundational elements. And I want to talk through those uh, just briefly with you today and why I think they apply and can be so helpful in cases of abuse, but also how they can be detrimental if applied Uh, from a wrong diagnostic here's what I mean by that if your starting point uh, is well versed and aware of the dynamics and impact of abuse then these six elements will be crucial in your counseling and care and even your confrontation if you're working with a perpetrator if your diagnostic does not include dynamics and impact of abuse or maybe you have not been informed then it's possible that you will misdiagnose what you're seeing and misapply these elements of care well let's talk through them and see if my assessment makes makes sense the first is what's often referred to as gathering data now i prefer the term information I just think it's a little bit, you know, less uh, sterile, less, um, you know, maybe a little bit more human. But gathering data is the act, exactly what it sounds like, of learning the counselee and learning the counselee's situation. Gathering information is one of the key elements of biblical counseling, and it begins by asking good questions and by listening well thorough data gathering includes being more nuanced than just tell me about your situation. One of the mistakes that can happen, especially with young counselors, is they get a little bit of information and then begin to apply instruction. One of the things I learned from my mentors was to slow down, to take my time, and to listen thoroughly to what I'm being told, to formulate and ask good follow-up questions that'll give me a much better better understanding of both the counselee, the client, and their circumstance. Information gathering seeks to understand not only the individual's circumstances, but how that individual thinks and responds to those circumstances. Now, of course, in abuse care, domestic abuse counseling, this is essential. Let's just use victim care as kind of our rubric for understanding and applying. Not only should we gather information about how our counselee thinks and the circumstances they find themselves in, when it comes to domestic abuse, we must also pull the rope and gather data on their experiences. This is one of the things that sometimes biblical counselors miss. Sometimes we run ahead to the counselee's thinking and responses without first putting ourselves in their experience. Second to that, we should also gather information about the impact. How is the circumstance you find yourselves in affecting you when it comes to abuse in particular? If I only gather data about how my client feels or the situation my counselee finds themselves in, I may inadvertently put the burden on my counselee rather than seeing them as a sufferer in need of relief or perseverance I may see them as a sinner in need of repentance every counselee is a marble cake of sin and suffering they are a complex collection of sinner sufferer and saint. and it's important at the data gathering stage that we slow down we take our time especially in cases of abuse one danger is that we shift from gathering information to investigating we're not called to investigate to find out who's right who's wrong where one stands on what side of the fence we're called to gather data information about the counselee's circumstances the way they think the way they respond and i would suggest too their experiences and the impact of their circumstances on them That will open up a whole new world of understanding how a perpetrator and their acts is affecting our counselee, how they are impacted by the power and control of their partner. Data gathering is essential to good counseling and care, but in abuse work, we need to slow down, take time and not just look into the mind of our counselee, but set in the experience of our counselee. Number two is discern problems. We gather data in large part so that we can discern and apply what we know of the scriptures, what we know of Jesus, what we know of God, what we have theologically framed out to discern what our counselee is experiencing and or practicing. We look for common things among the uncommon. What does the Bible already say about these issues that we're hearing? What, what has truth taught us? What has revelation given us about where our counseling is and what they're experiencing? We try then to distinguish between what's the fruit issues and what's the root issues? What's really the problem? Without a proper framework that begins at the data gathering stage, we can inadvertently begin to only apply discernment about the counselee's personal responsibility rather than see the effect of another sin on them, meaning we don't address their suffering properly. We haven't taken the time in the information stage to really see the suffering so when we discern the problem. Point number two, we're only discerning it from a personal standpoint, not a communal or scriptural or biblical perspective. Discerning the problem means we understand that in many cases of, of abuse, our counselee does have personal responsibility, but they're also being crushed under the weight of someone else's sin. Discerning the problem, then, means we distinguish between their personal responsibility, right, and our biblical responsibility to provide relief for their suffering, right, or safety in their suffering. Number three, gain involvement. So in biblical counseling, we're taught first, gather data. If we don't have a proper view or a broad view, understanding of the dynamics and impact of abuse, we can gather data with an agenda other than the gospel. If we're discerning a problem without understanding the problem, we can easily ask a person or apply personal responsibility to a person who needs relief and safety. That doesn't mean that personal responsibility isn't present. Absolutely. We want our counselees to respond to suffering, to pain, and even to evil, the way Jesus calls us to. But we don't want to put responsibility on them for someone else's wickedness. When we gain involvement, we crawl into the casket, as Bob Kellerman has said many times. We gain passport into their lives through hearing what they're saying rather than only hearing what we want. Are we listening to our counselees in such a way that they know that we're in their story with them? Are we listening well and are we living in their hurt and pain? Are we understanding their suffering in such a way that we begin to feel to some degree the weight of the abuse? Are we open? Are we willing to respond with more questions and engagement and hope, or are we simply shouting down their responses that may not be theologically adequate? I think that's one of the big issues with young counselors, too, is that we gather data, even if we gather it well. We see the problem, we discern the problem. This person is experiencing abuse at the hands of their intimate partner, and at the level of involvement, rather than sitting in their suffering, we address their sin. Well certainly they're sinners. Every counselee you have is a sinner. But is their sin the first topic we tackle? Well, certainly we want them to live well and live righteously, that's part of discerning the problem. But if their primary issue is the sin of another, they've been raped, assaulted, beaten, coerced, or controlled. That is producing the pressure that they're experiencing in their life. Then sit in that pressure. Gain involvement, gain passport by listening well, by hurting well, by mourning with those who mourn. Number four is we're then called to give hope. I love these principles. These key elements have served me well. We gather information, we discern the problem, we gain involvement, and then we offer hope we want to radiate like we want to give off the hope of christ we want to use the scriptures to provide hope for our counselees so that they know um, who jesus is right and what he has provided for them we want to articulate the provisional and positional aspects of the gospel before we jump headfirst into the practical Yes, the practical aspects of the gospel must be involved in our counseling. We must be helping our counselees grow in Christ. But we also must remind them who they are in Christ. If your identity has been driven or built or constructed by a person who uses power to control, if you believed the lies of someone who has abused you physically, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, then isn't it imperative that we offer hope of who you are? in him, what he's provided for you, what he wants to do through you. Focus on their potential. In Christ, um, the potential to love well, to serve well, to respond well, even to a series of bad choices to persevere, even in suffering are all part of proper instruction and hope giving but also give hope in the right way. We don't give hope by saying your abuser will change. We don't know that we won't give hope by saying you will always be safe. We don't know that, but we can give hope by saying, I'm willing to suffer with you. Jesus will never leave you or forsake you. Jesus has adopted you into his family. He's given you a calling and a purpose. He's given you a family. He's given you his spirit we're willing to help hope may also include things like resources and safety maybe we can offer them a safe place to stay or live maybe we can offer them resources in the community like law enforcement courts shelters domestic violence advocates who can walk alongside with them hope giving is not about giving them the answers to their problems Because you as a counselor do not have the answer to their suffering, but Jesus has a response. Giving them hope. The key elements are essential to counseling practice. But of course, if we start from the wrong diagnostic, we'll end up with the wrong treatment. If we've gathered information well and we see that abuse has taken place and we know the dynamics and impact of abuse, we can properly discern the problem. Applying responsibility where it belongs, accountability where it's necessary, hope where it's essential. We can give hope to our counselees through the power and the presence of Jesus and His Spirit, through the sufficiency of His Word and the credibility of His church. We can provide real hope apart from promises, right, that we can't possibly uh, keep. Fifth, we can provide instruction. I think sometimes and I know I've done this in the past, biblical counselors rush to the instruction piece because it's the most comfortable. We're more comfortable teaching than we are listening. Well, part of the part of the problem here is if we haven't listened well, then our teaching will not be effective. I had a Bible teacher years ago, a very prominent mentor in my life who was teaching me how to teach. And she said to me, "Chris, we teach people the Bible we don't just teach the Bible and she was calling me to exegete people as well as exegete the scripture meaning I can't just teach willy-nilly while the principles are helpful and hope-filled that doesn't necessarily mean that my counselee or my student is prepared to hear them where is my counselee? Have I properly exegeted through gathering data, discerning the problem, and gaining involvement where my counselee is and if they're prepared to hear what God's Word has to say about their problem? Yes, I want to offer them hope through the Scripture, but as I provide instruction, I want it to be appropriate instruction. I wouldn't give a depressed person a 500-page book to read between our meetings. That would be... um, Hope draining, life sucking for them. I would want them to to think on things that were manageable and doable so that they could have more hope. When I'm working with an abuse victim, I certainly am not going to overload them with practical application and personal responsibility. I want to offer them bite-sized chunks of hope and engagement. I want to give them doable exercises and empower them to make decisions on their own. Now, certainly my instruction may include elements of empowerment, but I can't force them to take the next step. I have to be patient. So I want to use the Bible. I don't want to just talk about the Bible. I want to give hope filled scripture, scripture memory that's powerful and effective. I don't want to give and overwhelm my counseling with instruction. I want to minister the word rather than just give them verses and the ministry of the word will require yes the bible but also the application of the bible to the people that i'm working with and we have to be patient When we rush instruction without doing the other five, other four elements, excuse me, if we haven't properly gathered data or discerned the problem biblically or gained involvement in their life or offered them hope through Jesus Christ, then instruction can actually not only be powerless, it can be um, destructive. The Word of God can be weaponized, and we don't want it to be a weapon, we want it to be healing, right? We want it to be sustaining. And then lastly, the last key element is to assign homework. We want to begin with the end in mind. We want to establish progressive sanctification as part of their daily existence and daily life, moving closer to Christ and farther from their sin. Now, some may hear that and say, well, see, there you go, Chris, you're blaming the victim. Not at all. I know full well that every victim is sinful. Is their sin causing the abuse? Absolutely not. Is their sin contributing to the abuse I don't think so in such a way that could somehow assuage the abuser they are a sufferer living under the weight of power and control but does that mean that they are um, without of course not part of our goal is to empower the victim and I think the best way to do that is by assigning homework that instructs them on who they are whose they are and their next steps in growing to conformity with Christ We want to address the inner man and the outer man. So we want them to be strong in the Lord so that they can make those decisions that are necessary, right, to help, to provide hope, the inner and the outer man. So, yeah, we're going to sign work. We're going to want to see our counselees grow. We're going to want to not just feed them through instruction, but we're going to want them to be self-feeders. And, you know, victims are some of the most consistent self-feeders I've ever seen uh, people who want to know the Lord who want to serve Jesus well and sometimes that that desire gets hijacked by um, perhaps well-meaning people or fearful people who give poor advice who have marriage focused solutions who are more concerned with matters of divorce than they are safety who get distracted from the glory of God with cultural and political language we want to give hope and help so these elements they're just tools but very effective tools in the hands of uh, God's people so do I promote biblical counseling in this form I sure do I want to see counselors gather information well I want them to know the dynamics and impact of abuse. I want them to be able to discern the problem biblically and not be afraid to talk about suffering and how individuals can be harmed by the sin of others. I want them to gain involvement. I I agree with Bob Kellerman. It's time to crawl into the casket with the hurting. It's time to listen well and hurt well. We have to give hope. I think hope is a precious commodity, and something that Christians have in abundance, and we should be giving it freely. And I think we should provide instruction, but that instruction instruction should be appropriate, reasonable, and applicable to the counseling in front of us. Not a one-size-fits-all pamphlet that covers everything, but a real, nuanced, laser-focused approach to help people grow in their relationship with Jesus. And we should assign homework. I think there's much work to be done and directed work, work that is purposeful, can be helpful to both the inner man and the outer circumstances. Well, I hope that was a helpful journey down some familiar topics if you're a biblical counselor. The key elements of biblical counseling that are taught at the very basic levels are retaught and redigested by those of us who've been involved in the work for years or even decades. And applying those same principles to abuse cases requires discipline, nuanced approaches, broadening our understanding, growing in um, discernment, but they can be effective tools in the hands of a competent counselor. Again, we believe the scripture is sufficient, but not all of us as counselors are. That's why we need help, and that's why resources like the PeaceWorks podcast are important. I hope you found this little walk through the key elements helpful, and I hope it enhances your ability as a counselor as we strive to care well for those who are hurting and care well for those who are doing the hurting. God bless you guys. Thank you again for joining us and being part of the PeaceWorks podcast.